I grew up on a street called 38. It was at the corner of 38 and Markwell. It was a neighborhood that many of you grew up in, or like it, where when the sun would rise, the streets would soon be flooded with kids, and those kids would stay outside until the street light came on. The northwest corner of that intersection, there was a house. Most of the houses had children in them, and this one didn't. Instead of children, they had a dog, and the dog was mean. And we knew the dog was mean because it would stay in the backyard when the gate was closed, and we would walk by, and it would come at our feet, seeking to devour our shoes and the metal that was in between. The dog was aggressive. Once in a while, the gate would be open. This dog was a chow. I'm not saying all chows are bad. If you have one, I'm happy for you. But this chow was bad. And it had been groomed to look like a lion. Short skin through its body and a mane on the front. So we called it the lion. And occasionally, we could see from our front yards that the gate was open. And when the gate was open, word traveled quickly through the neighborhood that the lion was out. We didn't send a rapid text message. We didn't have those. But we dialed each other's number and said, the lion is out. Kids would climb trees in their backyard to look over the rooftops to see if the gate had been closed, to see if the lion was back in place. But if the gate was open, the lion was out. And the kids left the streets. The word of God tells us that the gate is open. The word of God tells us that we have an enemy and he roams around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. That enemy would love to dupe you into thinking that this is just mystery, just fairy tale, but it's not. Peter said it wasn't. Jesus said it wasn't. And Paul ends his letters to the church of Ephesus clearly describing that this is not fairy tale. This is a war, a spiritual war that we are in. And though Satan, though Satan has been dealt a death blow until Christ returns, he moves. And he moves with strategy and he moves swiftly. And his aim is to destroy you and to destroy me and to destroy the church. The gate is open and the lion is out. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter six. I'm going to begin reading at verse 10 and I'll read through the end to verse 20. Here's what Paul writes. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, 
that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Now, Father, this is your holy word, and you have given us everything that we need in the powerful work of the Holy Spirit to have it illuminated. Would you do that, Lord? Would you cause us to see what we've not been able to see and to hear what we've been unable to hear? Would you cause us to stand confidently, courageously before one who seeks to devour us? Lord, lift the shield of faith, empower us to do so by your grace and for your glory. Even now, protect us, all of us, as we take your word seriously to heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul has written one of his most, if not his most eloquent letter to a church. And he begins in writing to the church to speak about heavenly places and to speak about what it means to be in Christ. That's all at the beginning of Ephesians 1. And then suddenly near the end of his letter, he comes to a place of speaking about specific things like being married and parenting and work. And then he has this very interesting transition where he now opens their eyes to the reality of a war that is taking place. And he describes it. This morning as we look at it, I want to simply describe the nature of the battle, the nature of our enemy, and then the armor that God has given us. It's very, very important as Christians that we understand the way in which God himself describes the battle. You see, we, we listen to what I said by way of a scripture introduction, and we know it's true. We experience the reality of this battle when we wake up in the morning and with the thoughts that swirl in our mind that often keep us up at night. We know the reality of the battle and the war that's raged as we read the newsprint or listen to news on TV. We know it not just from an external perspective, but also internal, seeing the ways in which the enemy will bring intrusive thoughts to our mind, constantly sending those flaming arrows. And it's real. We know it's real. If you haven't ever heard of this before, there's, this may be the moment where you're like, that makes sense. It's more than just my flesh. Yes, it's more than just your flesh. There is a battle, and its nature is far more than just flesh. Paul describes it in verse 12 this way. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, and these are his words as he's carried along by the Spirit, rulers against authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's an amazing statement. And what's important to know is it's not just mystery. It's not just good literature. It is describing a battle that is beyond our ability truly to comprehend and beyond our ability truly to see. It's transcendent. It's happening in a realm that we can't 
fully understand, but it's happening. It's happening in the heavenly places that we can't see or occupy, yet it's happening. And we know it's happening because the word of God says so, but also because we feel it in our lives. Sometimes Christians will say, I'm not surprised at anything anymore. Well, there's a reason you say that. And that is because of what happens in this battle when the most obscure, crazy, evil things are being manifest, where people are participating and creating ways to do evil that they now see as normal and ordinary. It's Romans 1 all over again. It's everywhere. But it has been from the beginning, after the fall. The world is engaged in this war, and this war is cosmic. That's the word of God. It really is happening in a, a layered realm that you and I can't fully comprehend, but it's happening. But we can comprehend it in another way. And that's because the battle takes place in the mundane. The battle takes place in the everyday onslaught of images that blow up your phone. Where graphic thoughts of immorality and impurity, when constant trivia just drips in that is not centered on Christ, when we open the door of our lives to all kinds of gross humor that consumes us and becomes almost natural. The enemy is moved in such an aggressive way in this cosmic spiritual realm, but we know it because we feel it in the mundane, everyday moments of life. As your anxiety grows, as your fears grow, as you battle constant thoughts that seem to come from nowhere, as strongholds and images begin to consume you, and your mind begins to say, I need more, I need more, but I know I shouldn't want more, but I do want more. It's a battle. And it's bigger than just your flesh. That's what Paul's telling us. He is saying this is a fleshly reality born out of a battle that is far greater than just you. It is cosmic. It involves rulers. It involves authorities. It involves powers and forces in the heavenly places. That's what the word of God says. We know it says it. We feel its reality. That's the nature of the battle. The battleground is absolutely transcendent, far, far away from our ability to comprehend, but also very intimate and personal, internal. The nature of the enemy, Satan, described here in verse 11 by Paul, is that he is strategic. He has schemes. In other words, Satan would tell you a hundred true things in order for you to believe the hundred and first, that's a lie. He roams around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. He's seeking, he's schematic, he is strategic. He knows us. But here's what you need to remember. Satan is not omnipotent, all-powerful. Satan is not omniscient, all-knowing. Satan is not omnipresent, all-present. There are powers, there are forces that make it feel that way, but the truth is he is not God. Our enemy is very real. He does seek to devour you. He knows what tempts you. He knows how to dupe you. 
He knows how to bring in subtle questions like, did God really say? And for you to move into this with moments of doubt and questions. He's evil. The word of God says so. For some Christians, they see this passage, they look at it, and their focus begins to be centered on the reality of the battle, this spiritual cosmic battle, or upon the enemy. That is not at all where Paul seeks to point us. Instead, Paul, in describing the nature of the battle and the nature of the enemy, moves to describe the ways in which we, and this is very important here, can stand against his evil schemes. One of the ways that Satan convinces, seeks to, to, to devour us is to convince us that we don't have enough in Christ to stand against this cosmic force, this evil battle, this evil scheme. But we do. We do. The point of this morning isn't for us to suddenly just remember how intense the battle is, but to remember how much we who are in Christ possess. That's really important. And so let's talk about the armor of God. Paul mentions six aspects of the armor. I'm gonna focus on three, but I'm gonna say the thing that's most important first. When Paul is speaking about the armor, before he mentions any aspect of it, the first being the belt of truth, he is reminding them of who they are, their identity. So the armor that is going to be placed on is being put on an individual who is the beloved son and the beloved daughter of the living God. The most important thing that we can remember in this battle that's transcendent and also very intimate is that we are the beloved children of the living God. We have a permanent identity, that's what it is, and a primary identity, that what it, that's what it is. So as those who are his beloved children, as those who have this identity, what that means is that we are the ones who are already in Christ. So as those who are in Christ, as those who are covered by the righteousness of Christ, as those who have this fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we will seek to wage war against this enemy. Not apart from Jesus, it will never work, ever, but in Christ. So as those who are in Christ with this identity, we move forward by standing and we stand by putting on the armor. I'm gonna mention all six, but then I'm gonna focus on three. Verse 14, he mentions the first, the belt of truth, then the breastplate of righteousness, Verse 15, he mentions the shoes for your feet, being ready. Verse 16, he speaks about the shield of faith. Verse 17, the helmet of salvation. And then finally, the sixth one, the sword of the spirit. And though he doesn't mention this as armor, he closes with the emphasis on prayer. So I wanna focus for a few minutes on this shield of faith, on the sword of the spirit, and on prayer. Paul in Ephesians has been using the plural for you continually. And what that means is that as he is writing this, he is not just speaking to individual believers. He is, and even as Chad said earlier, but more than that, he is speaking to a community of believers who together need to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. 
This is no more powerfully seen than in this picture of the shield of faith. Look with me at verse 16. In all circumstances, so just pause. What are all circumstances? All circumstances in every scenario, in whatever you're encountering moment by moment, day by day, in carpool, which is about to start. Okay, come back. I'm sorry I did that. In work relationships that are strained, when you're dealing with a rebellious child, when your marriage is in real trouble, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Now, the shield of faith that Paul would have been describing would have been a shield that the soldiers would have used. And it would not have been a small shield that you might have purchased for your child to play as if he was a Roman soldier. It would have been a a shield that was at least four feet tall by probably two and a half feet wide. And it would have been meant to be carried by the soldiers so that when the enemy would launch not one flaming arrow, but hundreds or thousands of them at once flaming that team, that, that army of people together holding those shields would kneel down and hold them up. And they would seek to make sure that there was no gaps between the shields so that no arrows could get through. And what God tells us is that when we hold up the shield of faith in verse 16, it is able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. What that means is there's no flaming dart that he can launch at us that cannot be extinguished by that shield of faith. Enter the voice of Satan right now. Did God really say that? Did he really say that there are addictions so great that you don't have a chance? Did he really say that there are strongholds so strong that you don't have a chance? that you are going to be pricked and poked by those flaming darts every time they come. No, he said, this shield of faith, by holding it up, you are able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield of faith is so significant, but it is faith. It is a shield born out of a reality where you and I, as his children say, I believe that. I believe that God has given me everything that is necessary for me to shield myself from every flaming arrow that evil one would send my way. The picture of it being a fellowship of believers, the church is very powerful. So a little one baptized today grows up in a place where he learns that as those flaming arrows come, there are Sunday school teachers youth volunteers, aunts and uncles, pastors, who for the glory of God and the good of that child will kneel down, hold up those shields, seeking to protect him or her from the enemy's desire to devour. The second one I wanna speak about for a few minutes is the sword of the spirit. In this collection of armor, the only offensive armor, the only weapon is the word of God. So just for a moment, think about this. If you have an enemy and you understand something of the nature of the battlefield and something of the nature of the enemy, 
and you know that they have this one weapon and you can take that out of their hand and, and they can't use it against you, wouldn't that be your strategy? So if Christians have in the armor of God this one weapon called the sword of the spirit, is it any wonder that Satan would begin there with his very first temptation? Temptation against the sword of the spirit? Did God really say? Do you see that? Genesis 3 is a temptation to not believe in the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. If the enemy can take the word of God out of our lives, the battle that he then wages is so easy to win. The destruction that he is able to bring is so great. So if he can't, if he can't take it out of your hand, is he done with you? Is he any longer scheming? No. So what he wants to do now is cause you to misuse it. And typically his ways of doing that are to focus on Pharisaism, legalism, to cause you to misinterpret the word of God, to use it in a way it was never intended to be used. That's why we constantly preach the gospel of grace. Because if God has given you a love for his word, a trust in his word, that is grace. The sword of the spirit is powerful. The last one I wanna mention is prayer. Verse 18, Paul concludes this section by saying, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints and also for me. Prayer is very powerful. Prayer admits helplessness. Prayer admits that we need something, and the truth is we do. The reason we are gathering in places like this and in corners of the sanctuary is because there's real power when we pray to the Lord against the evil schemes of the enemy. It works. The Lord moves. He loves it when we come to him and pray against these strongholds. And there's probably no single sentence in all of scripture that's more clear than what Paul is saying here about prayer, praying at all times. So when are we supposed to pray? At all times. Does that literally mean we should be on our knees, eyes closed, never rising up to, no, of course not. But it means that we are in constant communion with Jesus because we're in him. And that our life is to be a life full of continually praying to the Lord. When you're driving down the road, when you're on a date, when you're watching a movie, when you are engaged in a wonderful meal, God is with you. And the presence of simply lifting things to him continually as you would a close friend. And yet the king of kings is amazing. And so the Lord tells us, pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. The church of Jesus Christ, this church, a small expression of the larger church, must be a church committed to prayer. Bold prayer. Prayer for everything. The smallest thing to the largest. All things. Prayer without ceasing. Why? Because prayer involves more than just talking. Prayer involves listening. 
And the one we're listening to is omnipotent. The one we're listening to is omniscient. There's nothing God can learn. The one we're listening to is all present. And Paul ending his letter is saying, stand in him, put on his armor. And as we do, brothers and sisters, we are able, the gate is open and the lion is loose. But remember this, Jesus has dealt the death blow. He has given us everything that is necessary in Christ to stand against him. And he has told us that though the gate is open now, the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against him. Father in heaven, what a joy to be in the presence of your people together, knowing that even in this moment, coming to you is an exercise of, of us raising the shields of faith. It is a moment where we remind each other of the truth of the war that we're in, but the ultimate security that you have dealt the ultimate death blow. And one day there will be no more flaming arrows. But God, we need you to, to make us see how we cannot fight this in the flesh. And the temptation is for all of us to rely upon self instead of just simply coming to you in prayer and saying, cover me, save me, help me. So Lord, would you fix our eyes again upon the cross of Jesus? Take us there, hearing him say, it is finished. And then lift our eyes to the throne where he sits reigning as our king, living to intercede on our behalf and save us, change us, rescue us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.